This is Dr. Doctor, the radio show featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, where we and our guests discuss important health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. We have a fascinating interview today with Dr. Patrick Young, an obstetrician gynecologist from St. Louis, and we're going to discuss the so-called medical use or non-contraceptive use of oral contraceptive pills. Let's face it, Tom, if it's an OBGYN, it has to be interesting. Of course it does, Chris. goes without saying. It does go without saying, but you said it anyway. One of the taglines that we use in the Catholic Medical Association is that good medicine is good morals, or good ethics is good medicine. And we're going to demonstrate that today in our interview with Dr. Young. But first, we're going to go through some medical news items, a woman's healthcare tip of the day, and the tantalizing medical trivia question of the day. But first, a recent medical news item comes to us courtesy of Chris. Today's news item, if you need to take your blood pressure medicine and you haven't taken it, you might want to take it before I go through this, because <laughs> it certainly got my blood pressure up. Today's news topic comes to us from my specialty organization, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. Most of us call that ACOG. Uh, and recently, uh, President Trump's administration announced the creation of a new division within the Department of Health and Human Services that was dedicated to so-called religious refusals of care. Most of us refer to that as the new conscience department, uh, which is very near and dear to us in Catholic health care. And the American College of OBGYN released a statement, and I'm just going to read the news release for our listeners, or at least parts of it. Uh, they point out that they're troubled with this new office, that it could embolden some providers and institutions to discriminate against patients based on the patient's health care decisions. Quote, denying patient care because of a provider's personal beliefs can and will have real-world, often life-and-death consequences. They go on to say, and this is the one that I think some of our listeners may be surprised, coming from an OBGYN organization, quote, abortion, contraception, and sterilization are part of comprehensive reproductive health care and are essential to the health of patients. It just boggles my mind that somebody could consider these things normal. I mean, how we have warped our minds over time to think that such a thing is possible. But not even, not even normal, essential <sighs> to good health. Now, we, we know of people dying of dysentery all over the world. We're facing pan-flu epidemics. But what's essential to good health is abortion. And how is it that any physician has ever been required at any place or any time to do whatever a patient wanted them to do? We're not vending machines. Right. We don't require orthopedists to cut limbs off simply because a patient is tired of that limb. Exactly. And that's a real disorder, body integrity disorder. So I, w I became rather depressed thinking my specialty association, to which most, I would say, the overwhelming majority of OBGYNs are members, and we pay a great deal of money to be members of that organization. After and I read this... Are you thinking? I've already, not thinking, decided. I am no longer going to be a member of the American College. It's a disgrace, and it's an insult to those of us who have pledged our careers to taking care of women and taking care of life. And many Americans think that the American Medical Association, or AMA, speaks for the majority of doctors. Very few people realize that less than one in four physicians in the United States even belong to the AMA. Yet, if you talk to any layperson, they think that the AMA is speaking for all doctors. Well, the AMA would like that to be the case, but as you point out, it's hardly the case. And there's a new organization, or a relatively new organization, for those of us in women's health care, called the American Association of Pro-Life OBGYNs, which really is born out of these kinds of statements that have been published from the American College. But, you know, I, I thought, this is interesting. Maybe I should look at a few other specialties websites. And well, why don't you, Chris? <laughs> so in front of me, I have a statement from the American Academy of Family Physicians. Now, most all of us see family physicians, and our co-host, Dr. Andrew Mullally, is a family physician. And I found this on their webpage. The American Academy of Family Physicians endorses the principle that women receiving health care paid for through health plans funded by state or federal governments who have coverage for continuing a pregnancy also should have coverage for ending a pregnancy. Wow. That's December 2017. I like the way they say ending a pregnancy. It's much more tasteful than abortion, isn't it? Right. Well, that's, you know... Um 
I will have a quote later on in the show from G.K. Chesterton where he says birth control is a, a weak and wobbly word because the object is no birth and there's no birth to control. The same here. They're afraid of calling a thing what it really is because most of us would recoil from it. So I surfed on a bit more to the American Academy of Pediatrics. So now I've covered OBGYNs, family physicians, and then I thought I should probably look to the pediatricians. Now, pediatricians, let me, let me guess here. Pediatricians want more patients, so they obviously want more children. So they are going to be pro-life. And they are, by definition, lovers of children, right. lovers of babies. Right. Their statements say adolescents have the right to confidential care when considering an abortion and should receive timely access to medical care, according to the American Academy of Pediatrics. They go on to say, the Academy has supported the adolescent's right to confidential care and abortion services based on the significant medical, personal, and social consequences of adolescent childbearing. In other words, parents, sorry, you have nothing to do with whether your adolescent child terminates their pregnancy. Where do adolescent rights come from? I mean, they, they don't state that. They just assume them. It, it really is remarkable. So I, I think the takeaway for today's news is when you're talking to your obstetrician or your family physician or your pediatrician, for that matter, ask them, do they know where their professional organization stands on matters of conscience and matters of abortion? If you don't like their answer, I would find one that agrees with you. And I think patients do have the right to be treated by a physician who agrees with their worldview. I seek physicians like that. My family does. And people who disagree with us probably often seek a physician the same way. We should all have that right. And I think those of us who practice in a way that's consistent with life and a respect of it, when we see a patient that wants something that we disagree with, we treat them respectfully and kindly and point out to them, I don't perform that service. There are others who do, and, and I would invite you to go and find them. Yes. In fact, I even looked up on, um, you know, my own academy, the American Academy of Dermatology, and I noticed that they considered a practice gap that dermatologists are not aware of how transgender patients who have gone through cross-sex surgery should be treated. Five or ten years ago, who would have thought that was a practice gap because that was considered a disease that somebody would want to do that? And It just boggles my mind the way this is changing. Now, I would like to point out that there's also a new organization, the American College of Pediatrics. That's right. Absolutely. As opposed to the American Academy of Pediatrics, American College of Pediatrics is quite pro-life, pro-child, pro-parent, and a good, reliable organization for information. And if you find a pediatrician who belongs to this, you will undoubtedly find one that is most often committed to life. Absolutely. So again, the takeaway, ask your physician what they know about their own specialty organizations. That's the news. You're listening to Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio, and we're moving on now to Chris's woman's preventive health tip of the day. Well, I'm, I'm expanding. I'm moving beyond women to all people. Ooh. <laughs> I'm pro-people now. <laughs> Actually, today I'm going to talk about pneumonia. You know, pneumonia is often called the old man's friend, and I'm thinking whoever said that wasn't an old man. <laughs> no. Yeah. I'm going to talk about a vaccine, the pneumococcal vaccine, to prevent pneumonia. As opposed to the oldococcal vaccine. This is the new one. Yes. The new one. Yeah, that was their requisite dad joke that our children flee from. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, pneumococcal pneumonia is caused by a bacterium called strep pneumonia pneumococcal. And so it's a very common cause of pneumonia. And you may hear people refer to pneumococcal disease. So that's pneumonia or blood infections or pneumococcal meningitis, which is an infection of the tissues around the outside of the brain. But just for reference, 300,000 people are admitted to hospitals each year with pneumococcal pneumonia. Wow. That's astonishing. Essentially, all of Fort Wayne each year is admitted for pneumonia. That would shut the town down. I believe it would. (laughs) There are two types of vaccines that are available for pneumococcal uh, pneumonia. One is called the conjugate vaccine. It's also known as Prevnar. And the other is a polysaccharide vaccine that's known as Pneumovax. So who should receive a pneumococcal vaccine? Really, children younger than two years of age receive pneumococcal vaccines as part of their childhood vaccination series. And then, most especially, adults over the age of 65 
And then there's some in-between if you have some high-risk medical conditions. Like? For example, diabetes. If a, a diabetic has a three times higher risk of getting pneumococcal disease than a non-diabetic, heart disease also has a three times increased risk. But listen to this. COPD, or chronic obstructive mm-hmm. pulmonary disease, has a seven times increased risk of getting pneumococcal disease. Just by being age 64, you double your risk of pneumococcal disease. So like with so many health problems related to infection, it's the vulnerable in the society, the very young and the very old. Where would somebody go to get a pneumococcus vaccine? You know, really any primary care office, a health department, often uh, large employers that have employee health programs will provide the vaccines. Certainly the national drugstore chains that provide flu vaccination also provide the pneumovax. But, you know, we always like to talk about the value of of some of these treatments, and it's pretty interesting. It's it's estimated that from the time the very first pneumococcal vaccine was introduced in the year 2000, 3,000 deaths were prevented in that those first three years of the vaccination. So this is a remarkable number of people, particularly the elderly and the infirmed, that could prolong their life and their and their quality of life by not contracting pneumococcal disease. And usually, it's a one it's a one and done vaccine. Right. Occasionally, there are specialty circumstances where your physician may want you to be revaccinated. But for most of us, it's a one time shot, literally. Uh, one time in life, or just once every year? No, one time in life. Oh. Now, the childhood series is a multiple vaccination, but that has more to do with the way childhood vaccines work. But for those of us like you and I who are not yet 64, but will be someday, it's a one-time <laughs> shot and we're finished. Oh, beautiful. It's not like the flu shot. No, absolutely. Well, before we go to our break, I'll pose our medical trivia question of the day, and we have a twofer today. Yes, two for the price of one from the world of transplant medicine. That's right taking one diseased organ out, putting another better organ in. The first question, what organ was first successfully transplanted from a living donor to a patient? Was it the heart, kidney, liver, or lung? The second question is like unto it, but with a twist. What organ was first successfully transplanted from a cadaver, the body of someone who had recently died? Was it a heart, kidney, liver, or lung. Come back after our interview with Dr. Patrick Young for the answer on Dr. Doctor, coming to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio. This is Dr. Doctor, where your host, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Chris Stroud, and our guests discuss important health-related questions from an authentically Catholic perspective. Tom, today we have a great guest who's coming to us from not that far away, Dr. Patrick Young. He's an associate professor in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology and Women's Health at St. Louis University School of Medicine. And Patrick specializes in the evaluation and management of endometriosis as a cause of pain and infertility. He performs numerous high-tech, exciting surgeries to treat this devastating disease. And Dr. Young is married, and he has three daughters and a brand new son. Dr. Young spoke in Denver at the 2017 Catholic Medical Association Annual Conference with a topic called, Can Hormonal Contraceptives Be Used for Medical Indications? And a lot of our listeners <clears throat> assume that they can be. I'd like to go back to, oh, about 100 years ago in, in Great Britain when they were founding the Eugenics League Those who wanted only a certain type of person born, they trumpeted more children for the fit, less for the unfit. And the unfit at that time were said to be on their own uh, magazine, Hebrews, Slavs, Catholics, and Negroes. And this is where birth control clinics were set up. And my favorite author of the 20th century, G.K. Chesterton, wrote that I despise birth control, first because it is a weak and wobbly and cowardly word, It's an entirely meaningless word, and it's used to curry favor with those who would at first recoil from it because the proceedings these quack doctors recommend does not control any birth. It only makes sure that there shall never be any birth to control. And it was 50 years ago this year that Pope Paul VI released Humani Vitae about the beauties of marital love. Patrick, how have you seen our culture influence the way that modern Americans view 
contraception. First off, thank you very much for that introduction, and I want to thank you both for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. It's a great honor and opportunity. You bring up Humane Vitae and Pope Paul VI, and we're coming up on, well, this is the 50th year. Humane Vitae was amazing. Uh, Everybody thought that the Church would change its mind on contraception, and it didn't. And Pope Paul VI at the time, kind of against all odds, or against everybody's, most people's predictions, reaffirmed that the marital embrace, that's the term I like to use, (laughs) has two purposes that cannot be separated. And those two purposes are love and life, babies and bonding. And if you try to have one without the other, problems will happen. So if you try to have birth without bonding, or babies without bonding, that's IVF, for example. Or if you try to have bonding without babies, that's contraception. So you can err on either side, and and problems will happen. And that's one of the amazing things of this document, is that not only did he affirm that you cannot separate those two things, but he actually prophesied things that would happen if you make that separation. And in particular with contraception, he kind of foresaw four things, you know, one of which was a general degradation in morality and in the way that men view women. And 50 years later, I mean, who, who would argue? We just have this, this, this now trendy Me Too phenomenon happening, and all uh, these... Yes sexual abuse cases are all coming out all over the place. Well, is there any wonder that that the general morality has gone down, or perhaps the way that men view women has deteriorated? And, and he, he saw that. He saw that if you separate babies and bonding, that this kind of thing would happen. Isn't it interesting, um, if you think of the value proposition of, of contraception, to say that sort of sex without consequence is pro-woman, isn't that, that's awkward, isn't it? It's, it's hard to imagine that they became synonymous, and yet they have. Right. And another prediction that he made was that governments might even try to use birth control to make people limit their family size. We've seen that in China. Absolutely. one-child policy, maybe two-children policy. And even here, you know, now we have this, this mandate to to cover contraceptives within healthcare. So, a lot of these things that he foretold, almost all of them have come true, and and even more so. You know, people would argue that what we're seeing now in terms of the transgender debate, you know, we, we would never have been able to predict, perhaps five years ago, that we would allow a five year old to choose their gender, and we all celebrate it. Some would argue that that is a result of contraception perhaps first that has led to this kind of idea that we can control our bodies and even control our genders in general i would like to say that i think there's a general belief or kind of idea that people have that things like contraception and ivf are kind of the ultimate treatments that can be offered to plan our families or to treat infertility, for example, and that the Catholic Church teachings just try to block that or inhibit us from accessing those types of treatments or, or medication. Well, the and church, so the Church is seen as limiting. And, and what are they—and they may be limiting, but they're usually trying to limit evil or, or limit sin and, and increase joy in life. So what is it that an oral contraceptive— does to women's bodies when it's used to try to prevent pregnancy or birth? To help our, under, our listeners understand this. Right. So I think the basic, I mean, my basic belief in, in modus operandi is to say that good ethics is good medicine. If what the Catholic Church teaches about our human sexuality and the way that we're designed is true, it should work and work well. It should not be suboptimal medicine. And so I think we have to try to make that change or see how that can be true. Now, contraception, let's start with what contraception is. Contraception morally means that you don't know if the act of marital embrace that you're engaging in is fertile or not. So you do something before, during, or after the act to make it infertile. And there are different ways to do that. You know, you could use a barrier, you could use a a hormone like the birth control pill, oral contraceptives, which try to 
make infertile or block pregnancy by taking the pill. So, so that is what an oral contraceptive would be. Now, these are, these are made of hormones. Oftentimes, it's some combination of estrogen and or a progestin, which is synthetic progesterone. A way to think about it is I talk about it like it's a chemical pregnancy. So simplistically, you're kind of flooding the system, the body, with hormones. So it thinks it's already pregnant, so you don't ovulate. Uh, that's kind a really of. good way to describe it. Now, you know, you talk about what are the side effects of birth control pills. Well, they're very similar to the way people feel when, or the way women feel when they're pregnant. So the common side effects are nausea, bloating, weight gain, mood changes, breast tenderness, chocolate cravings. <laughs> Not everybody likes to feel pregnant, right? And then we can talk about it as well, but, but it also has other, other likely mechanisms that it, it, it utilizes to prevent pregnancy. But that's a basic idea, way to think about what oral contraceptives are. So, Patrick, I know several of our listeners would say, well, I don't take oral contraceptives because I don't want to be pregnant. Maybe, maybe they're not even sexually active. Certainly what we hear a lot about is so-called non-contraceptive benefits of oral contraceptives. I wonder if you might walk through what some of those are, or at least what some of those are portrayed to be. Okay, so first off, you know, oral contraceptives were designed initially, and even now for the most part, to prevent pregnancy. People are now talking about trying to use birth control pill regimens for medical reasons. So that's kind of a different use of the way they were originally designed. So so-called off-label use. Sure. At, at, at least, yes. Now, is that allowable? So if you're talking about the ethics of that, let's get right into it. So, so they would say, well, I'm not using it to prevent pregnancy, or I'm not using the birth control pill for contraception. So therefore, it's allowed, because I'm not using it for that reason. So their intent basically, they would say, would justify their use of the pill. Um, it is true that, for example, if somebody was not sexually active, that there would not be necessarily a moral issue in taking birth control pills or a kind of hormonal suppression. Whether or not that is the best medicine, meaning whether or not that actually get to the root cause of the problem and treat the underlying condition and in there in that respect be actually a good form of treatment or medicine is different oftentimes birth control pills are really a more symptomatic treatment or band-aid therapy than actual treating of the cause of the problem yeah as we think about a terrible condition that's near and dear to you and I as OBGYNs and that is endometriosis it always disturbs me that it's the number one thing offered to young women for the symptoms associated, or at least thought to be associated with endometriosis, yet the literature is replete with data that says it doesn't help the disease. How do you respond to that? Yeah, I, I often joke, you know, as an OBGYN, if you just practice the run-of-the-mill everyday OBGYN, it, it's like a no-brainer. I mean, you'd be writing birth control pills every day to everybody, and there's not much thinking involved. <laughs> but if you really you know, stay focused on, like in every other field of medicine, trying to find the underlying problem and address that, then it ends up being very interesting, and, and that is the art of medicine. And that's usually what happens. But somehow in the world of OBGYN, that's kind of lost. For women's health issues, it's often the birth control pill, which, again, is that best symptomatic treatment or, or suppressive therapy. And then for infertility, oftentimes we bypass the problem. Like IVF, that kind of circumventive therapy. We've stopped looking for and addressing the underlying causes. You mentioned endometriosis. So this is a, a topic dear and, and, and near to my heart. It's something I specialize in. Birth control pills are used, or hormonal suppression is used as a quote-unquote type of treatment for endometriosis. Now, to be clear, at best, it helps endometriosis-associated pain. Hmm. Meaning, when you're on some kind of hormonal suppression regimen, you might feel better. Now, that said, oftentimes, things like birth control pills 
or the Moreno IUD, which is another form of delivery system for hormones, like the Moreno IUD, or it is used for painful periods and heavy bleeding. But the number one side effect of the Morena IUD is, in fact, abnormal bleeding. The number two side effect is increased cramping. This is well documented. So it could actually cause what it's trying to treat or make the symptoms worse. That is true for the birth, for the Morena IUD, but it's also true for other forms of hormones. Patrick, thank so you for that. Best, we need to take a break right now. We're through the first sure. half of the interview. This is Dr. Doctor with Dr. Chris Stroud, Dr. Tom McGovern. We're interviewing Dr. Patrick Young today about non-contraceptive uses of contraceptive pills, and we'll be right back. This is Dr. Doctor, where your host, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Chris Stroud, and our guests discuss important health-related questions from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, our guest, uh, obstetrician-gynecologist specializing in endometriosis treatment, is Dr. Patrick Young of St. Louis. Now, Patrick, I know that in Denver this year at our CMA annual meeting, you gave kind of a moral analysis of whether or not it was ethical to use contraceptives for non-contraceptive purposes. Yes. So basically people would say, if I am not meaning to use the birth control pill for contraception, then it's okay. And I think that justification would be some kind of skewed understanding of the principle of double effect. Well, I think we have to kind of revisit what double effect means. Double effect has certain core criteria that have to be met, one of which is that there's a good effect and a bad effect that, that are coming from the same action that is chosen. And the bad effect cannot be the result of the good effect. And the bad effect has to be proportional to the good effect. So with the birth control pill, again, oftentimes it can block ovulation. But there is a known breakthrough ovulation rate of birth control pills. There's even a high, so if you have a combination pill, that breakthrough ovulation rate can be anywhere from 15 to 25%. Wow. Whereas with progestin-only pills, it's probably up to 40% or more. Oh, my gosh. Much but higher yet, than people would let us think it was. Yeah, certainly our listeners right. are not going to hear that failure rate in the mainstream media. Right. And yet, the pregnancy rates, when, the, when it's used properly, are more like under 1%. So you have this, you know, significant breakthrough ovulation rate and yet a very low pregnancy rate. So the mechanism of action of the pill to reduce pregnancy or prevent pregnancy, you have to assume, or is at least post-ovulatory and likely post-fertilization, which means if you think life begins at fertilization, this is a problem. That's what we call an abortifacient effect, meaning it can prevent implantation of an early embryo or cause a miscarriage. So that is basically a loss-of-life effect. So that is very significant. That, it, that would be the negative, at best, the negative yet undesired effect of taking the pill. The desired effect is to treat the medical condition. But then you have to ask yourself, how often is this happening? And again, over time especially. When you take the pill over time for certain medical conditions like acne or pain or bleeding then the chance of an abortifacient effect goes up over time. And then is that proportional? Is, is a significant loss of life over time proportional to treating acne? That's the moral analysis. That's separate from is symptomatic treatment actually good medicine and, and address the underlying cause of the problem. So back to something like endometriosis. Endometriosis affects pain and fertility. Well, at best, you feel better when on birth control pills, but birth control pills or hormonal suppression do not diagnose the disease, whether or not you feel better, do not remove the disease, do not prevent progression or recurrence of the disease. And actually, that, that is an issue. So, so that came out recently. People think that if you put patients on birth control pills who have endometriosis, that's going to prevent it from growing. That's one of the common uses of hormonal suppression. In two recent reviews, one done by somebody else and one done by us, we found that that 
common use of hormonal suppression is at best thought of as expert opinion and is not evidence-based. It also does not help fertility. When you're on them, of course, they're contraceptive. But people have tried suppressing endo now, like with six months of Lupron, which is kind of like a chemical menopause, to help <laughs> down the road fertility, and that has not been shown to be helpful. So if the, so the data shows that it's not helpful, why do the vast majority of OBGYNs use it? It's easy to do. You don't have to do surgery. And there's kind of a belief that if you do surgery, it's always going to come back. So that's based upon the published data that the rate of recurrence after the way most people treat endometriosis, which is by ablation, which is kind of trying to destroy the implants with energy, that that published rate of recurrence is up to 50% in two years. We have published a paper after optimal excision. So we're cutting it out. We looked back at almost half of patients in two years, and the rate of finding endo again was zero. Wow. So if, and the majority of our patients have had previous surgery, usually by ablation. That implies that when the burning is happening, they're probably not getting it all. And when they look back, they're probably just finding disease they did not treat or was missed. Our data would imply that if you actually treat it well, the rate of it coming back or being missed can be very low. So we advocate getting it early, and we have shown that there's a potential to eradicate disease and maybe even do something good for down-the-road fertility. And if you treat the disease well with excision, we have shown great outcomes for pain. Pain scores uh, go down. Sexual functioning improves. Quality of life improves. And again, recurrence rates and, and progression rates are very low. So, so good ethics is good medicine. On, yes, exactly. If you focus on trying to find the problem and fix it, you can get good outcomes. But, but that takes effort, and I think we've lost that focus. If you just joined us, you're listening to Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio, where we are interviewing Dr. Patrick Young, an OBGYN specializing in treatment of endometriosis, and he's talking about the non-contraceptive uses of contraceptive hormones. Patrick, what are some other conditions women are treated with birth control pills for that have probably better health and better moral options? Okay, a very common, another common use of birth control pills is abnormal bleeding. Again, we talked about for any kind of progestin-only regimen, progestin-only meaning something like a Mirena IUD, Depo-Provera, the implant, Implanon or Nexplanon, continuous progestin-only pills, those are all just giving a progestin. The number one side effect of any of those regimens is, in fact, abnormal spotting. <laughs> or breakthrough bleeding. And that's why there's so many different kinds of regimens out there. Why they keep producing birth control pills and different types of pills. Not because they differ so much in the efficacy rate, but because they're trying to manage and improve the side effect profile, namely the breakthrough uh, spotting profile. So while they're taken for birth control, sorry, for abnormal bleeding, they can in fact make that worse or cause what they're trying to treat. And they don't get to the underlying problem. Some studies have shown that up to 30% of abnormal bleeding can be caused by a subacute endometritis or infection of the lining of the uterus. Uh -huh. And if you give antibiotics, that can improve abnormal bleeding. And or Patrick, maybe there's an undiagnosed bleeding disorder. Uh, Patrick, for our listeners, those terms are tricky, aren't they? We've been talking about endometriosis and that you just referenced a similar sounding condition, endometritis. The latter is, a, is an inflammation or an infection, whereas the other is this endometrium outside of the uterus. But fascinating, isn't it, when the looks on patients' faces when I tell them, I think we could treat your bleeding with antibiotics. That's something <laughs> they're not expecting to hear. Uh, right. So there are underlying conditions that can be causing the abnormal bleeding or something inherent or, or inside the uterine cavity, like a polyp or a fibroid. Those are anatomical conditions that can lead to breakthrough or, or intermenstrual bleeding, and those are things that can be cut out and treated. So there's lots of things that can lead to it, and I think these days, again, we've lost that focus on trying to find the problem and fix it, and so often people get put on birth control pills to treat bleeding without knowing what the cause is. That's a good point. I mean, this good ethics, good medicine is actually more pro-woman because you're trying to get to the root of the problem and not cover something up. I mean, what woman wouldn't want that? Right. It's a fascinating Absolutely. dilemma, as I, as I sort of referenced earlier, I think, that in the current dialogue, 
to be anti-contraception is to be labeled anti-woman. And it's hard for me to think of a paradigm where being pro-contraception is pro-woman. Whether we're talking about the biology or the theology, I think we end up in the same place. So what what is your bottom line regarding the, the moral use of this? Would, would you fall on the side of saying that if a woman is sexually active, that it probably is not moral to use birth control pills even for non-birth control purposes? Correct. I would say if you do the moral analysis, but especially over time, if you're using birth control pills for minor medical issues, that there's a high likelihood that there's an abortifacient effect and that that effect is not proportional to the intended use of the pill. That's the moral analysis. On the, on the just medical analysis, there's oftentimes better treatments that actually can get to the heart of the problem and, and treat the disease like endometriosis or like abnormal bleeding or like PCOS or acne, all these things where you can get to the heart of the problem or the base of the problem and not need birth control pills, which oftentimes really at best is just symptomatic or Band-Aid treatment. So a bottom line for our listeners is that there's a woman out there and a doctor wants to give them contraceptives for any disease, they should next ask, what other options are there? And Correct. I think, I think sadly we know many of those physicians to whom they would be asking the questions sadly don't know of the other options. And hopefully programs like this will make them more aware and help patients be better consumers and look harder. We have a minute left, Patrick. What would you like to leave with our listeners? I would just say again uh, that I really think that there's a, a general thinking that, that church's teachings are so limiting and outdated and not scientific and and kind of block people's access to the best care that is, is available. And I don't think that is true. I think if, if what the church's teachings are on the way we're designed are true, they should work and work well. It should not be suboptimal medicine. And they should kind of guide us and focus us on good medicine. And I think that we can see that. And, and especially in the world, in, as an example with endometriosis, that if you try to find the problem and fix it, you can get great outcomes. And it's actually very trendy these days. Do not want to try to use things that make you feel pregnant. It's very <laughs> organic, very trendy, very green. Yes. To look for alternatives to birth control and to the way that we treat our medical or our women's health issues. Patrick, thank you so much for being our guest today. We've been interviewing Dr. Patrick Young, obstetrician gynecologist from St. Louis, Missouri, on non-contraceptive uses of contraceptive pills. This is Dr. Doctor taking a break. We'll be right back. This is Dr. Doctor, where your host, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Chris Stroud and our guest discuss important health-related questions from an authentically Catholic perspective. Tom, I know most of our listeners are just like me. They can't wait to find out about the organ transplant trivia. Yes, today's first half of the trivia duo is what organ was first successfully transplanted from a living donor? Was it a heart, kidney, liver, or lung? Well, in 1954, one identical twin gave to the other identical twin a kidney. And because they were genetically identical, this surgery worked. In fact, the brother receiving the kidney lived another eight years. There was no surgery with a transplant for another eight years because unless the organ was genetically identical to the person receiving it, the body would reject it. And what happened eight years later in 1962 is the beginning of anti-rejection medicines that would prevent your body from attacking something foreign to it. You know, it's so, interesting. We would think just listening that the magic of transplant comes from the surgery side of it. Now, you and I are surgeons, and we love to, we love to think of how, <laughs> how critical we are to success. But in reality, the success story with transplant came from medicines, didn't it? It, it did. Because in one sense, you know, you can crudely think of some transplants as just a plumbing 
operation, that you're moving things around. Well, the second question was, what organ was first successfully transplanted from a cadaver, that is the body of somebody who had died? Was it a heart, kidney, liver, or lung? Well, like the surgery in 1954, the surgery in 1962 was also a kidney transplant. The same physicians did it in Boston, and the patient who received it lived over one year and started on a medicine called azathioprine. And In 1963, it became possible to more closely match donor tissue to recipient tissue. So that in 63, the first lung transplant was done in Mississippi. And then the first successful pancreas kidney duo was done in 1966. A liver in 1967. And that same year in South Africa was the first successful heart transplant. 68 had the first successful United States heart transplant. And we've come a long way since then, and it's given many people an important lease on life. Uh, And in fact, transplant patients make up an extraordinary part of my population because with skin cancer, transplant patients are at a a hundredfold risk of squamous cell cancer of the skin. Not 100%, but 100 times as much. So I get to see them a lot, but thank God for, for transplants. Well, we also have a question from a listener today. Yes, Tom, today's question comes from one of our listeners, age 61, and this listener writes, I expect to have a life expectancy of 95, which is very optimistic, I would say. Yes. Um, And I'm not interested in living a longer life than that, but I want to live healthily for as much of my life as possible. Are there things I should do that will keep me healthy but not extend my life expectancy? Well, I did some research with some friends of mine in various um, fields of medicine. Uh, Number one, a good diet, balanced, whole greens, fruit and vegetable. Number two, definitely exercise at least five days a week for half an hour, even if it's just walking. You know, Tom, my father-in-law used to say that it was a proven fact that exercise increased your life uh, minute for minute the time you spent exercising. (laughs) And he used that as a reason not to exercise. <laughs> Not heard that. Could be true. Uh, you should regularly see a physician for checkups to find things that uh, might be wrong that you're not aware of. Stay mentally active so that you'll be enjoying those years. Isn't it amazing we see uh, some people very elderly that are busy and they have sharp minds, and it seems like a common thread is that they're using their mind like, a, like other muscles. I see it every day in the office. And everybody needs to have some purposeful activity, something where they're making a difference in the life of another person. So now, Tom, we have this listener to 94 and a half. She doesn't want to go past 95. How do we help her with that? I think the best thing to do would be to take up a high-risk hobby, skydiving, wing walking on airplanes, or bungee jumping. If you ever saw the movie Secondhand Lions, it's hilarious. And it looks at two men in this same situation. They actually end up dying in an accident flying a World War I biplane unsuccessfully under a freeway underpass. <laughs> in other words, none of us knows the day or the hour. But uh, good, healthy living can get you so far. But when you're leaving this earth, only the good Lord knows. We do have a special treat today. We have an interview from one of our friends, Dr. Eustace Fernandez, where we're going to talk about smoking with him. This is Dr. Doctor today with Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Chris Stroud. And in studio we have for a little pulmonology expertise, Dr. Eustace Fernandez, who today is going to talk about smoking. Smoking. Tom, do you mean people still smoke? I've heard that. (laughs) I've seen it in books and even on the Internet. It it must be true. In in the interest of disclosure, I want to say that I'm old enough to remember when you could walk into the doctor's lounge or the nurse's break room and you had to duck down below a cloud of smoke. Uh, And I think a lot of our younger healthcare providers probably don't realize that smoking among healthcare professionals used to be the norm. It was. In fact, uh, many of the early ad campaigns for smoking endorsed them as being very good for health, um, you know, with keeping your weight in check and, and giving you a little extra pep during the day. So over the years, we've discovered, obviously, that, that there are many head-to-toe problems with smoking. In fact, there's, it's very difficult to um, uh, find a part of the body that's not negatively impacted by, by tobacco smoke. If this were a new product 
in the United States in 2017 or 2018, it would it would not be a legal product. It would never make it to market. You know, it's interesting. Uh, I've heard it said that smoking is a new thought to be relatively safe way for teens to rebel. It's so culturally unacceptable that it can provide a wonderful means that's somewhat less permanent maybe than a tattoo for the teenager to rebel. Do you see that in your practice? I do from time to time. Um, You know, it is interesting that if we look at who is smoking now, who are the new starts, it is young teenage women. Hmm. Why? I don't know. I don't know if if it's what Chris was alluding to that is uh, a sign of... uh, of rebellion. Certain tobacco products are even marketed specifically to young women uh, because that's the only area of tobacco abuse that's actually growing in the United States. You know, I think there might be something, this might sound weird, aesthetic about it. You know, you think of Audrey Hepburn, Breakfast at Tiffany's. But I remember distinctly back when I was in my fellowship, there was a, a dermatologist who only did cosmetic procedures. And she looked at me and said, you know, if it wasn't that it was so unhealthy, I love everything else about smoking. And it was all the aesthetic aspect, how you hold your hand in your wrist, how you look, how the smoke looks coming out. It was really odd. But I wonder if some women see that because, frankly, I don't see the attraction. Well, you know, the other thing is that is that what we inhale is, you know, and tobacco smoke contains a large amount of nicotine. And that nicotine binds to these very special receptors in the brain, uh, which are dopamine receptors. Uh-huh. And dopamine is the substance that gives us that feeling of euphoria, of happiness. So it is extremely hard to break nicotine addiction. There have actually been studies that show that it is harder some, in, in some people to quit tobacco smoke because of nicotine addiction than it is heroin, which is saying quite a bit. So it is something, you know, most of my patients who are, who I see in my clinic, who are continuing to smoke, they know it's bad for them. They know it's bad for them, but they, they can't let go of it for one reason or another. Now, is it like other addictions where over time it takes more and more of the stimulant to make you get that happy response? Or can you be at a steady state amount of smoking and still get that happy response? I don't believe so because eventually you end up saturating all of those happy receptors in the brain and the body's natural instinct is to seek more. So I think that that's certainly um, not the case. And then it also becomes something that becomes habitual. So so they have an extra minute here or there and they say, well, I'm just going to have a cigarette because I got some time to kill. And so one of the things I work with my patients on uh, when we're talking about smoking, I, a couple things. Number one, I, I don't beat them up because they all know it's bad for right. them and, and humiliating them generally does not help them. Number two, I help them to understand or I try and get them to examine what situations they find themselves smoking in. So if there are particular situations where uh, they find themselves smoking, they have to avoid those situations. Unfortunately, most of my patients continue to smoke because of life stressors, and those are difficult to remove. Sometimes that stressor is someone who lives in their house who's not easily removed. So, <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then I encourage couples that I see who smoke, to, I challenge them to, to work together to help each other stop. So kind of use a buddy system to quit. You know, we've seen recently the advent of so-called e-cigarettes and and the vapor sort of movement. Uh, Very sad to see immediately adjacent to a high school that's important to me. uh, There's one such store here in Fort Wayne. Uh, Is that a healthy alternative to traditional smoking? I don't think anyone who's looked at the data on e-cigarettes or vaping would suggest that it's a healthy anything. I think the medical data remains, uh, medical jury remains open as to whether or not it is a useful tool or a not useful tool in helping people stop smoking. We do know um, most of the preliminary data suggests that vaping does have negative consequences for lung health. So obviously, um, it's best to just inhale the Lord's clean air and nothing else. (laughs) Now, how does the smoke in the e-cigarette or vaping differ from the smoke that's in a cigarette? Well, with vaping, you still get the nicotine. 
And the idea is that you dial down the nicotine over time in whatever you're vaping. The, the upside is that what you're not inhaling are all of the hundreds of carcinogens that are in traditional cigarettes. So all of the usual toxins, the tar and the other nasty substances that are in grandpa's Marlboros, you're not inhaling. But the effect of what, you're, what you are actually inhaling while you vape is as yet unknown. So we don't know if there are any cancer-causing effects of nicotine alone, or do we know it is not cancer-causing? We, I think we don't know because we, it's never been studied in okay. isolation. Very good. Well, well, I think it's fair to say the best way to stop smoking is probably to never start. I think that that's, uh, that's a really, really great point. And I think, you know, one of the things I encourage my patients to do, and, and they always look at me a little bit oddly, I say, you know, pray for deliverance. Because this is uh, like any addiction or any, any habit of, of sin we have, and, and smoking is a, a sin against stewardship of our own body. Uh, you have to pray for deliverance. And, and I sometimes get approving looks, sometimes I get odd looks. So it's always an opportunity to, to encourage someone to pray. Thank you very much, Dr. Fernandez, for wisdom about smoking. And thank you for listening to Dr. Doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud signing off until next time. Remember that your medical decisions can have profound consequences. Choose wisely. Choose Catholic. Remember, you can find more information about all the topics and resources discussed in this episode by visiting RedeemerRadio.com doctor and checking the show notes for this episode. Next week on Dr. Doctor, we'll be joined by Dr. Paul Ruse to discuss gender dysphoria, sometimes called transgenderism. Dr. Ruse will share the latest research and faithful and scientific best practices for treating people struggling with the illness. Tune in for Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio every Friday and Saturday afternoon at 1 or find new episodes wherever you get your podcasts, including Apple Podcasts and Google Play. Make sure you subscribe so you never miss a new episode and leave us a rating and review to make it easier for others to find the show. For more information, as always, visit RedeemerRadio.com doctor.